Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company. Now, just a reminder to tell your friends, it's not hard to watch on your television screen. Just search ADH on your Apple TV. Now, I know you know that, but your friends don't. It's the App Store or in the Google Play Store. Just download ADH and boom, you start streaming the show. It's easy to do and it's free to watch. Now, tonight, we'll cross to Santa Barbara where our US correspondent, Peggy Grandy, will join us to discuss the latest in America. Plenty going on, especially with the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, which granted Americans a constitutional right to have access to abortion. Whatever your opinion on this is, and there are plenty, one point has to be stated. At a factual level, the Supreme Court merely decided that this important area of decision-making is the responsibility of the states. That's all that's happened. It's actually no different from what happens in Australia. States here have the power to decide the legalities of abortion. It is true to say that in most states in America, it will remain legal. And yes, in some states, there will be restrictions. Now, we'll also talk to Keith Pitt. He served as the Minister for Resources and Water in the Morrison government. This bloke has ability, but no surprise here, in Little Proud's National Party, there is no room for Keith Pitt in the shadow ministry. We'll talk to him about this renewed reliance on coal, where the public are starting to wake up Someone who needs to wake up is the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet. Climate protesters, more like anarchists, hit the streets again in Sydney today to protest climate change and cause havoc in peak hour traffic. Now, these yahoos are from an extremist environmental group called Blockade Australia. Yesterday, they blocked the Sydney Harbour Bridge or the Sydney Harbour Tunnel and caused the closure of the Harbour Tunnel, then ran through the streets in the CBD, hurling signs and bins and barricades and other objects onto roads and at the police. Now, some were charged yesterday, and no surprises here, granted bail. Now, Dominic Perrottet, I'm sorry, but each day you appear to be a Pinot, not the wine, but a Premier in name only. You need to drop a legislative bomb on these people. It can't go on. Hard-working members of the public who are travelling to work are forced to a standstill on the road while their cars are on with record, still turned on with record high petrol prices, they can't continue to be subjected to this disruption. I mean, it's hard enough, for God's sake, getting food on the table and paying for the bills, let alone dealing with these yahoos. It is not a peaceful protest. It's anarchy. And there is a difference. Viewers, tell me what you think. Email me, Alan Jones at ADH.tv. 
Well, the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has done very well in the difficult job of learning the ropes of government. He should not be criticised for travelling overseas. It was inevitable, though, that the roadblocks would soon appear. And in spite of all the nonsense that he wanted to end the climate wars, the reality is he may well have restarted them. Anthony Albanese, along with his energy minister, Chris Bowen, is saying to the world that Australia's standing has been damaged, quote, by a failure to take climate change seriously, unquote. This week, he's at a NATO summit meeting in Madrid, saying, quote, when it comes to national security issues, Australia, now like the US and Europe, understands that climate change is a national security issue, unquote. Well, in one sense, he's correct. Because if, in addressing so-called climate change, the Albanese government pulls the wrong rein, our national economy will be smashed. I've long called this, as you know, this net zero emissions argument, a national economic suicide note. Now the Albanese government is apparently going to go a step further and legislate for a 43% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions by 2030, eight years away. Legislate. This is danger with a capital D. Peter Dutton is right to not back the talk of legislation, forcing the Prime Minister to do some deal with the Greens. At a time when we're confronting a massive energy crisis from which coal has rescued us, here and in Europe, to put such an aspirational target as 43% into legislation is not only divisive, not only does it reawaken the climate wars, but it puts our national economy in peril. Now, of course, you've got the large renewable energy investors terrifying the new government and warning them that Australia could lose access to billions of dollars in private funds allegedly needed to transform the electricity grid to 100% clean energy. A laughable proposition in itself, unless, listen to this, proposed power market reforms exclude fossil fuels. Well, of course, the renewable energy investors have a stake in all of this because government, by its decisions, can make them richer and Australia poorer. Every move the government makes towards renewable energy is money in the pocket to these green energy investors. No matter how many blackouts the policy produces, no matter how much manufacturing grinds to a halt. Yesterday, energy ministers met with talk that power companies would receive direct payments if they are able to fill, quote, unexpected gaps in the grid, unquote, when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. So there is at least a concession that there will be unexpected gaps. But the renewable energy lobby are saying that coal should not be allowed to fill the gap. All is a time when places like Germany, which wants to cut carbon dioxide emissions by at least 65% by 2030, Germany has been mugged by reality. European gas prices have soared by 50% and there is open conversation about rationing resources and paying families to conserve energy. And having pledged to shut down its remaining coal-fired power plants by 2030, Germany is now going to fire up 10 gigawatts of mothballed coal-fired generators, which made up more than 28% of Germany's generated electricity last year. Renewables were only 41%. Last week, the Dutch joined the Germans and the Austrians in reverting to coal power. This is a direct consequence of ploughing into this renewable energy Paris Agreement without ever contemplating what the consequences would be when renewables don't meet our energy needs. Now, I often refer to Bjorn Lomborg, 
He's not a climate change denier. But he argued this week, and I quote, for three decades, climate campaigners have fought to make fossil fuels so expensive that people would be forced to abandon them. Their dream is becoming reality. Energy prices are spiralling out of control and will soon get even worse, unquote. Borg rightly, Bjorn Lomborg rightly says, quote, while Western governments are blaming Russia's war on Ukraine, prices were already rising because of climate policies designed to choke fossil fuel investment, unquote. He went on, the climate policy approach of trying to push consumers and business away from fossil fuels with price spikes is causing pain with little climate payoff, unquote. Why? Well, here is Lomborg's answer, quote, solar and wind are still only capable of meeting a fraction of global energy needs, he says. Argues Lomborg, even with huge subsidies and political support, solar and wind delivered just 9% of global electricity in 2020, unquote. And this point, heating, transport and vital industrial processes account for much more energy use than electricity. This means solar and wind deliver just 1.8% of global energy supply, unquote. When will people from the Prime Minister down wake up? They've read nothing, but they've been fed this dogma about renewable energy. As Bjorn Lomborg says, quote, even in the rich world, it's clear that few people are willing to pay the phenomenal price of achieving net zero carbon dioxide emissions. He mentions Germany, quote, on track to spend more than half a trillion dollars on climate policies by 2025, unquote. Now, the moral of the story is that policymakers, including Albanese, Bowen, Perrottet, Keane, Daniel Andrews, Palaszczuk, won't be able to continue to push expensive policies without a backlash. And as energy prices soar, so too will resentment and public protest. Bjorn Lomborg makes a simple point, quote, with the trillions spent on green energy failing, last year saw the highest global emissions ever, this year higher again. And as he rightly argues, quote, climate policies are broken. Well, they are the very policies our government is taking to the world. The consequences are about to hit. Bjorn Lomborg deserves the last say. Climate change, he says, quote, will not be solved by making fossil energy unaffordable. Well, just in relation to what I said earlier tonight, we must never back away from seeking sensible debate, factual, not emotional, on the energy crisis confronting the world. It's a massive issue. There are two ways of addressing this. The first is with open and frank discussion. The second is to bully and intimidate business and individuals, including school children, to toe the line, that we must march in step to net zero emissions. The biggest bullies are in the corporate world, and they include banks. We won't lend to you if you don't commit to net zero. Remember the bank that wouldn't lend to the port of Newcastle because it exported coal. Yet the latest resources and energy quarterly report from the federal government forecasts coal exports to reach 110 billion this financial year. That, I might add, is to make sure that other countries have cheap energy, but not us. Earlier in this program, you remember I cited Bjorn Lomborg, the internationally acclaimed president of the think tank 
Copenhagen Consensus Centre. He's a former director of the Danish government's Environmental Assessment Institute. He is not a climate denier. But he issued a warning this week that energy costs increased 26% across industrialised economies last year and will rise globally by another 50% this year. And he said, quote, while Western governments are blaming Russia's war on Ukraine, now listen to this, prices were already rising because of climate policies designed to choke fossil fuel investment, unquote. He goes on, huge price rises are the inevitable result of forcing more energy out of an increasingly starved system. And he wrote, the climate policy approach of trying to push consumers and businesses away from fossil fuels with price spikes is causing pain with little climate payoff. He says for two reasons. First, solar and wind are still only capable of meeting a fraction of global electricity needs. He writes, quote, even with huge subsidies and political support, solar and wind deliver just 9% of global electricity in 2020. He said heating transport and vital industrial processes account for much more energy than electricity. This means solar and wind deliver just 1.8% of global energy supplies, unquote. And this, Germany's on track to spend more than half a trillion dollars on climate policies by 2025, yet has only managed to reduce fossil fuel dependency from 84% in 2000 to 77% today, unquote. Now, McKinsey, who call themselves, quote, the trusted advisor and counsellor to many of the world's most influential businesses and institutions, have estimated that getting to zero carbon dioxide will cost Europe 5.3% of GDP, Germany more than $200 billion annually, which is more than Germany spends on education, police, the courts and the prisons. Indeed, as Bjorn Lomborg has said, three quarters of the 21st century's emissions will come from China, India, Africa and Latin America. They won't accept slower economic growth to address a 2% problem 50 years from now. But he warns that if we want to talk carbon neutral by 2050, that will cost 16% of GDP. For us, that's approximately $300 billion a year. Well, enter a man they call the Lion of Bundaberg, Keith Pitt, the 53-year-old National Party member for the seat of Hinkler, centred around Bundaberg. In the defeated Morrison government, he was the Minister for Resources and Water. He's got a Bachelor of Engineering from the Queensland University of Technology. He recently wrote, because his electorate is based around Bundaberg, quote, if you walked up the main street in Bundaberg and asked a dozen people if they thought the local council achieving net zero emissions by 2050 was a key priority, what do you think the answer would be? Well, I asked Keith Pitt to join me. He can give me the answer. Keith, thank you for your time. Good to talk to someone with a bit of common sense. What would the answer be down the streets of Bundaberg? Well, the answer would be no. And we've just heard today, Alan, that rates will go up here by almost 4%. So, you know, it, it's just a ridiculous proposition. I, I just want our response to be proportional to our contribution in terms of this debate. And I want our electricity network to be designed by engineers, not focus groups, because they actually know what they're doing. If you put a bridge design to, uh, you know, a group of people and poll what looks nicest, what do you do when it collapses and kills hundreds of people? Wonderful stuff. You've been an opponent of this net zero emission stuff, but as a former resources minister, you weren't able to make it into Little Proud's shadow ministry. You were either not good enough or you didn't fit in with the Little Proud line. Come on, share with my viewers, which is it? 
Oh, Alan, I was very clear. Uh, the leader that took us to the election was Barnaby Joyce. I voted for Barnaby. And that may or may not have had some influence. Uh, but look, the, the reality of the world is very straightforward. Uh, it'd be easy to put the queue in the rack and sit down and let the states do really dumb things, but that would destroy our country. Uh, it, it is not in our interest to have an electricity network, such a critical piece of infrastructure, be unreliable, unaffordable, drive manufacturing out of Australia. It's not our nation's interest. It's the reason I fight to try and get some common sense into this debate. Why did the Nationals give ground to Morrison and agree before Glasgow to net zero emissions by 2050? Well, that was a decision of the party room, Alan, uh, and in our room, majority rules. Well, you know, welcome to politics, as, as you know. That's, yes. that's just how it works. Morrison... But we have seen the Labor government come out now. 43% yes. they want to put on, yes. legislate it, make it unlawful not to achieve. Well, what do you make of that? I mean, that's just a suicide note. Oh, I think it's crazy. I think we've got to get back to the case where technical people are designing what is the most critical piece of infrastructure in this country. It is a really, really complex system to try and run. We've let the states run basically roughshod over, over the federal government. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull got us into this mess. We should never have been uh, in the electricity network, in food electricity generation. It's a state constitutional responsibility, uh, but somehow it's all our fault. Yes, indeed. You're described as a hardcore opponent of net zero policy, along with the formidable Matt Canavan. Matt declared the net zero target, once we saw the energy catastrophe here and in Europe, as, quote, all over bar the shouting. Is it? Oh, look, I think there's a lot of debate to go yet in Australia. But uh, yeah, I'd come back to what Chris Ullman said last week. He had some research but for batteries to do what Mr Bowen is suggesting. It's been put forward that will cost six and a half trillion dollars. That's not a typo, six and a half trillion, three years of our entire GDP. I mean, it's just absolute madness. It is madness. So we've got a resources sector which is doing record numbers, forecast to do $425 billion this financial year. And as you said, 110 in coal and Queensland Labor's just pilfered some more out of their pockets again in their most recent budget. Uh, I'm told that they could raise as much as $14 billion in royalties out of the coal sector in Queensland. Now, that damages our national reputation. Uh, it takes away from decisions on new projects in Queensland. That's bad for the regions. We've just got to get back to the point where we are making common sense decisions on things yes. that work. Yes. And, and as you've so rightly said, intermittent wind and solar, well, there's some 40-odd billion dollars has been provided through investment and subsidies uh, into that area. And mm. I think everyone watching your program knows that the network is not more reliable mm. and it's not more affordable. Absolutely. But the Teal independents seem to have people in the coalition terrified. The Liberals saying the coalition must reassess the Morrison-era climate change policy. That means, of course, move closer to Labor. What are your thoughts? Oh, Alan, as I've, as I've said before, as I'm sure you've said and others have said, now, moving further to the left, moving further to the Labor Party just makes more people vote for the Labor Party than the Greens. You know, we, want, we know what our position is. It's one of common sense. It's one of lower taxes. It's one of you know, the right of the individual to make their own way in this world and in this country. Uh, and yet the idea that we walk away from those values, in my view, is wrong. Uh, it's one of the reasons that the National Party has existed for more than 100 years. Mm. Uh, the party of common sense, the party of the bush, the party that fights for the regions and, and you know, what they represent. And what they represent is a whopping great big piece of uh, money into the federal budget because most of our exports come from regional Australia. Absolutely. They're not strong. The country's not strong. Peter Dutton has said he won't support the 43%
legislated uh, limit on the reduction of carbon dioxide emissions. But he did say an interesting point, which I'm a little worried about. Whatever we can do, he said Australia needs to do whatever we can do to discuss the use of renewables, but to do it in a way that doesn't turn off the lights. Look, Keith, when you've got 2,000 years of coal under your feet and technology improving every day, why wouldn't we join other countries like Vietnam, South Korea, Japan, India in building high efficiency, low emissions coal-fired power stations? Well, you're exactly right. And the reason's straightforward. We can't find a state government to approve it. You know, I'm aware of two proposals in Queensland for coal-fired power stations. I don't expect either of them will get a state government permit to build those. And yet, as you've said, we've got good, available and very affordable fuel located in places where you could put power stations or refit the existing yeah. ones and make them larger. The technology is out there to reduce emissions by as much as 90%, even yeah. on our existing facilities. Yes. Uh, and yet the fight is always about the fuel source. It's never yes. about the outcome. And see, I mean, we're allowing the rest of the world now to torpedo our economic strength, which has always been an abundant supply of cheap energy. Now, up where you are, that Bundaberg mayor is supporting net zero. Has the bloke done any homework on this? I think it was aligned. Uh, you know, it's very clear that he was lining up for the federal seat for more than a year. <laughs> a net zero by 2030 for, for a council, uh, right, for, for ratepayers to have to support. Uh, I've been very clear in my views. I've been very public. I think the ratepayers are entitled yeah. to ask for the cost on that before that decision is and made. I, and I think they'll, I mean, yeah, they'll wake up. They're competitors, Alan. They're uh, whether it's yeah, China or up. Russia or others. Yeah, I mean, but your ratepayers oh, will wake up. up. There's no doubt. Absolutely. I mean, you have said if emissions are an issue, and I've argued against that for ages, carbon dioxide is the source of all plant light. But if that is important... You have made the point a thousand times. They are currently at their lowest levels since records began in 1990. Who, apart from Keith Pitt, tells the National Electorate that? <laughs> There's not too many out there. Uh, facts, as you know, is just not as good as feelings, apparently, in the federal parliament, Alan. It's all about feelings. <laughs> yeah, that's a good line. Fact, not interested. Feelings mean everything. Australia has reduced, just before you go, our emissions more quickly than Canada, Japan, New Zealand and the United States. And if it's important, which I don't believe it is, but we're on track to meet and beat our 2030 Paris target. As you say, the latest projections show a 30 to 35% reduction. What's all the kerfuffle about? Well, that's exactly right. And that sounds like something I've said hundreds of times. You have. Uh, but you know, the, the reality is the idealists, they'll just never accept it. You know, they're out blocking the Harbour Bridge. They're yep. protesting in Sydney. And for what? They got what they asked for. They've mm. got a Labor government. And yet that's still not enough. They want to destroy our nation, uh, the strength of our country, our energy security. I mean, China and Russia, they must sit there scratching their heads wondering why it is Australia would give away such a big advantage, the resources in this country, the things that we can do with them, uh, the fact that we can continue to make ourselves a sovereign nation uh, that's capable into the future, and yet we give all that away. Good on you. Listen, I'll tell you something, Keith Pitt. We haven't heard enough from you. We need to hear more of you. Outstanding. Great to talk to you, and we will talk again. The fight has to be maintained. Well, I've certainly got more time on my hands, Al. Happy to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well done. There he is, Keith Pitt. He's the federal member for Hinkler and talking common sense, but as you know, common sense isn't common. Well, look, Australians and indeed civilised people around the world must wonder where democracy is heading when they witness violent protests here and overseas. It seems the days of rational debate are over. If you don't like a government decision, take to the streets with violent behaviour, violent language 
and violent consequences. We've seen this last week in America following a Supreme Court decision and yet again in Australian streets more of the same. An outfit called Blockade Australia says it will embrace more unauthorised protests and they were at it, at it again today. The mob yesterday numbered about 60, converging on Hyde Park about 8am, dispensing themselves across the streets, getting in the way of traffic at 8 o'clock in the morning when people are trying to get to work and making use of any object in their path, chairs, sandwich boards, traffic barricades. A young woman parked her car across the northern entrance to the Harbour Tunnel and have a look at that picture there. You can get an idea that's at the northern entrance to the tunnel. She put a bike lock, I won't show you this picture, a bike lock around her neck and then linked her neck to the steering wheel. She was identified by Blockade Australia as a 22-year-old Lismore resident. All this was live streamed by the 22-year-old who then said, quote, to those people who are really angry right now, I understand. It's not a good thing to be experiencing. You know what, she said? Climate change isn't a good thing to be experiencing. I've watched much devastation with two one in 100 year floods. This is climate change. I cannot stay silent anymore. I cannot be complacent anymore, unquote. Of course, this is the end result of the dishonest propaganda that's been fed about climate change. Most probably, the young woman in question wouldn't be able to volunteer 10 sentences about the subject, nor be able to properly define what she was protesting against. But this is the point we've reached. If young people are encouraged to believe that if nothing is done, the world is going to end, and they're inheriting a world which denies them the benefits which we have enjoyed, then emotions will be stirred. Now, of course, there is no justification for the violence and the social dislocation caused by the blockade. Sad though it may be, the young woman has been arrested because she believes all this stuff that's been fed to her and this is where we end up. Apparently, 10 arrests were made and we're told that there are new anti-protest laws aimed at deterring protests that disrupt roads and ports and other infrastructure. The penalty is up to $22,000 or two years in jail. I've no doubt that the young people involved yesterday knew nothing about the new laws and most probably would be comforted by the bleeding hearts who make up the various human rights groups who argue that such laws are draconian and, quote, incompatible with the democratic right to protest, unquote. More propaganda, more untruths. No one is denying people the right to protest. But if you're going to march in the streets of capital cities, you ought to have to first secure appropriate approval so that the protest does not selfishly disrupt others going about their lives. And there must be a commitment in order to secure the licence to protest that there will be no violence. And then... If that is breached, the law must step in. We get a few mealy-mouthed utterances from politicians, but if the mob yesterday were protesting about climate change, there are most probably green lefties in the parliaments of Australia who'd be cheering them on. There are two issues here. It's time we woke up to the consequences, emotional, social, psychological and economic, of feeding this climate change propaganda and fear into the minds of young people. The second thing is, the right to protest must be observed. But like any right, there must be limitations. Government should spell out those limitations and attach to the right to protest the very specific consequences if the conditions are not met. And a maximum of $20,000 and two years jail is simply not enough. Of course, it is enough if you don't believe in law and order 
and are quite prepared to have the rights of the majority surrendered to the violent determination of a few. But if that's where we are, then democracy is on the rack. Well, let's bring in, as we do every Tuesday, the splendidly informed former executive assistant to the former American president, Ronald Reagan, Peggy Grandy. It's been an extraordinary week in America with the reversal of the Roe v. Wade, which Peggy alerted us to, as you'll remember, some weeks ago. So let's go to Peggy for an update. And she joins us. Peggy, thank you for your time. But there's a lot of emotion in this, but not a lot of proper regard to the facts. This was a 1973 ruling that provided women across America with a right to an abortion. So, Peggy, how does the overturning of the 1973 decision affect American women? Well, it really won't affect them in all that many states. Some of the states, there may be changes of policy, but really this just allows, it changes who gets to decide who decides how abortion is decided. And it's putting it back on the states, which is where it rightfully belongs. The right to an abortion was never a, a right granted by the Constitution. And so it was wrongly decided 50 years ago, and the right decision was made to overturn it. The people should be actually celebrating this because now this decision is closer to them. They can weigh in with their state legislatures to make it known whether they want a, a abortion to be legal or not, how, how frequent and how late in the term of the pregnancy that they want this to be available. So really, it's returning the right to the states yeah. and to the people to decide. Yeah, that's exactly what happens here, by the way. The states in Australia have the right to determine all of this. Have comments, though, in relation to this inflamed Americans? Well, of course, but we're only hearing one side of that. And the other side of that is um, people who have been pro-life and active in that movement for years are celebrating this decision. And Christians all over America and even around the world who have been praying for this to happen after 50 years are thrilled that their prayers have been answered. But of course, we're only hearing the other side. We're hearing those who are outraged over it and think that abortion will never be allowed again in America. And that's just not the case. And let's be clear. These people are not pro-choice, they're pro-abortion. Because if they were pro-choice, they would also celebrate and encourage a woman's right to carry a, a baby to term. And by the fact that they're going in and destroying these crisis pregnancy centers and intimidating both staff and young women who are choosing to seek alternative um, to their pregnancy and maybe choose to keep the baby shows that they're not pro-choice. They're truly pro-abortion. Mm. Well, Clarence Thomas wrote that, quote, because any substantive due process decision is demonstrably erroneous, we have a duty to, quote, correct the error established in those precedents. Now, he was referring to Supreme Court cases in 1965, 2003 and 2015, which granted Americans the rights to use contraceptions, the rights to same-sex intimacy and the rights to same-sex marriage. Do Judge Clarence Thomas's comments on, quote, correcting the error of previous Supreme Court cases give reason to fears that the Supreme Court will challenge the rights, for example, to same-sex marriage? Well, he said implicitly in his um, majority opinion that he wrote that it would not affect things like same-sex marriage, interracial marriage, transgender kids in schools. 
And in fact, you know, the left loves to talk about precedence, but only when it's convenient for them. Because remember, many years ago, we overturned the precedent of women not being able to vote or interracial marriage being banned. And so precedent, we love to um, celebrate it when it agrees with us. And they're certainly against it uh, when it doesn't suit their purposes. Peggy, but notwithstanding the disagreements with the Supreme Court decision, and people are entitled to disagree, it does seem when the left disagrees with anything, which of course they are entitled to do, that violence follows. How bad is it? Well, the violence is incredibly bad right now, but this is what the left does. When they don't get their way, they they go to violence because they can't win on ideas. And they're frustrated that these are things that they've been trying to get done through the legislative system and they have failed at that. And so they wanted the court to do the things that they wanted to do. But the courts are not like a vending machine. You just press a button and get what you want. And so they're incredibly frustrated by this right now. And there are, there are a lot of activists that have taken to the street. Many are paid to be there. Um, but a lot of people really have um, unjust outrage for this because it really, it is the right decision. And even the liberal justices of previous years have stated as much. Uh, but I understand social media has lit up with thousands of unprintable threats and racist abuse towards Judge Clarence Thomas since last Friday. Peggy, if conservative people made these comments on social media, they'd be cancelled. But there are unprintable references to Clarence Thomas, one because he's a, a black American judge, one referring to him as Uncle Clarence, a reference to black men's servility to whites from the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. Peggy, Clarence Thomas was appointed to the Supreme Court by George H.W. Bush in 1991. He's been consistently attacked by the left, which prompted Clarence Thomas to write in 2002, and I quote, perhaps some are confused because they have stereotypes of how blacks should be. And I respectfully decline, as I did in my youth, to sacrifice who I am for who they think I should be. Peggy, it's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? It is, and what a great example of being steadfast and brave and bold in the face of opposition Clarence Thomas is. And unfortunately, he's not alone on the right. We look at Dr. Ben Carson that ran for president last term. Um, we look at somebody like Senator Tim Scott, who is a Republican from South Carolina. And these are both black men who have also been persecuted for having opposing views. And it is so wrong that they would assume that blacks would vote in one way and that they're not the right kind of black if they are conservative. That's just out and mm. out wrong and mm. everybody knows it. Judge Thomas, did he last week write the majority opinion in another so-called controversial decision which struck out a 109-year-old New York state law that restricted the right to carry handguns outside the home. He cited America's Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. What has been the reaction in New York to that, Peggy? Well, isn't it interesting? They always call it controversial if it's something the left disagrees with, yes. but if it's something they disagree with, they say it was rightfully decided. You know, Clarence Thomas made a really interesting point in this, and he said that Second Amendment is not a second class amendment uh, to the Constitution, but it is equal to the others. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to say that you had to have special permission or had to prove that you had a need for the right to carry a, a gun outside of the home. And his point was that you don't have to show proof that you need the right to have free speech or the right to freedom of religion. And so if 
the Second Amendment is an equal amendment to the others, there shouldn't be an extra burden of proof on the law-abiding citizen to prove that they need to access this right. It should be inherent just like the other um, rights. And he was correct about that. And it was a very interesting opinion that he wrote. Absolutely. They talk about an America being divided, Peggy, but as we said earlier, the violence and institutional disrespect comes from forces of the left. How should that, though, be addressed? Yeah. You know, there's so many things we should be united in right now, and we should be celebrating the rule of law. We should be celebrating when justice prevails, but the left is unwilling to do that. And if they don't get their way, they want to pack the court. They want to change the rules. They want to say that it was unfair or unjust. And instead, we should be celebrating the fact that, you know, even these judges who were under such pressure to change their minds and to decide it a different way because they had been bullied by the left um, once the opinion was, uh, the draft form of it was leaked. And they held true to the opinions that they had written before. And thank goodness that um, the courts cannot be swayed by public opinion. Absolutely. And we hope and pray that these are wise, sound people who are making the best decisions for all of America. Excellent comment, Peggy. Excellent. Look, there's a Daily Mail story that President Joe Biden spoke with his son in 2018 about the son's business dealings with a Chinese criminal whom the son had dubbed the spy chief of China. Now, the president has reportedly denied personally and through his press secretary that he ever talked about Hunter's foreign business with, uh, well, China's foreign business with Hunter Biden. But files on Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop that previously disclosed, I might add, by the Daily Mail, show that he struck a deal with the Chinese oil giant CFC worth millions of dollars. Now, the New York Times ran a story in 2018 that the chairman of that company had been arrested in China and his lieutenant had been convicted of bribery. And the reports say after seeing the story online, Joe Biden then, neither a vice president nor the president, called his son and left a voicemail, and I quote, I thought the article released online, it's going to be printed tomorrow in the Times, I thought it was good, I think you're in the clear, unquote. Now, Peggy, all this flies in the face of President Biden's repeated denials that he ever discussed Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings with his son. Well, there's not one person who believes that or has ever believed that. And Hunter Biden's laptop, isn't that the gift that keeps on giving? <laughs> Just when we think we've heard everything coming off of that laptop, we hear something else. But none of this is a surprise to the American people. And it just continues to be a disappointment that the media has been complicit in covering up something that really the American people and especially the American voter prior to the 2020 election had a right to know. I think the American people, though, at this point, they're most worried about, is Joe Biden compromised? The more we learn about Hunter Biden's dealings with, whether it's Russia or China or other bad actors all over the world, is Joe Biden compromised? And that's what the American people want to know. It's very clear he was closely connected. The family did profit financially. And so is he compromised? Yes, indeed. And the, the thing that you just alluded to there, I mean, why is there no media interest in what is transparent dishonesty? That's the disturbing feature of all of this. Peggy, great to talk to you, as it always is. Great clarity tonight. Thank you for expressing all of that to us. We really appreciate your insights. Talk to you next week, Peggy. Great. Thank you so much, there Alan. She is. Isn't she outstanding? Peggy Grandy in America. At a time when tensions continue between Australia and China, 
It must be said that the new Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, and the Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles, have said all the right things in trying to break the ice between the two countries. That doesn't mean ignoring the expansionism of China in our part of the world, and it doesn't mean we have to accept the boycott that China has imposed on certain Australian exports. But put in its simplest form, we do have to learn to live with China without provoking them, and we have to learn to seek other markets to accommodate our trade interests. Our dependence on China has been too overwhelming. And as we saw during the pandemic, we were unable to service our needs because we were relying on Chinese medical supplies. I might add the same thing applies to the energy debate. It's all very well to go on about solar and wind energy, but the turbines and the panels are made in China. We're exporting jobs, but equally putting at risk our supply chain if such dependence on China continues. Well, in all these things, we have to differentiate between the Chinese government and the Chinese people, many of whom have been readily and productively accepted into Australia. Nonetheless, it must be of concern today to learn that Chinese international students account for more than half of New South Wales universities' overseas enrolments, after thousands more began courses last year, even as many remained offshore and learnt online. An Auditor General's report tabled in the New South Wales Parliament this week said the pandemic had increased universities, plural, reliance on the Chinese market. The University of Sydney was the biggest beneficiary of Chinese students, accounting for 87% of its international student revenue last year. Indeed, Sydney University increased overseas enrolments by more than 40% last year. The Auditor General's report further said that 43% of all universities' course fee revenue came from three countries, China, India and Nepal, 43%. The report cited seven of the state's 10 public universities now record China as the leading source of overseas revenue. However, it would be a mistake to believe that the issue is only one of cash flow, as universities worry what will happen to the revenue base if there were geopolitical changes or restrictions on visas or travel bans. Universities typically worrying about the cash and not much else cite cash flow as their concern. Well, we need to remember, it was only a couple of years ago that the editor of the Global Times, the leading Chinese Communist Party publication, described us as, quote, pieces of chewing gum on the sole of China's shoes. The Chinese ambassador in Germany warned that German cars could be, quote, deemed unsafe by Chinese authorities unless Huawei was given the green light. Sweden was warned of consequences if it awarded a dissident Swedish-Chinese publisher a prestigious literary prize. Indeed, the Chinese ambassador to Sweden told Swedish Public Radio only a couple of years ago, quote, we treat our friends with fine wine, but for our enemies, we have shotguns, unquote. So while we must pursue engagement with China, we must also feel free to respectfully stand up to China for not being a good international citizen. We welcome the Chinese students, but if Australia is so good in advancing Chinese scholarship, why can't we talk about China's illegal actions in the South China Sea, about the debt trap diplomacy in the Pacific, about the port of Darwin? Here we are with Chinese students comprising more than half of New South Wales University's overseas enrolments, 
while Australia is home to more than a million people of Chinese heritage. They value the liberty and freedom, freedom of expression that they enjoy in Australia. Many of them have strong family ties to China, but they know China is not a democracy and they expect us to stand up for human rights. Now, it's only a couple of years ago that a group of university students in Queensland sought a peaceful protest in support of Hong Kong democracy. One young man was assaulted by men who gave every impression of being heavies working for the Chinese state. He was then targeted by a torrent of online hate and death threats from, quote, patriotic Chinese students. Indeed, China's Consul General in Brisbane praised the violence, violence towards those Australian students supporting Hong Kong democracy. Nothing was done. In fact, the young man peacefully protesting for democracy in Hong Kong was himself punished by the university authorities. Was cash flow to the university the reason? Was it because the Chinese Consul General in Brisbane was an adjunct professor at the university? Was it because the Chinese government was funding at least four courses at the University of Queensland? One course titled China in a Changing World, Understanding China. Was it because Queensland University had a Confucius Institute? I repeat, we welcome students from all over the world, but we ought to know what is going on, read the Chinese influence in our universities. The University of Queensland courses in Chinese policy, music and language were developed in partnership with the university's Confucius Institute, one of 13 such Chinese government-funded soft power centres in Australia which run language and culture classes in university and schools and have been accused of being vehicles for Chinese propaganda. So it's one thing to take the cash from the Chinese students and for universities to worry about cash flow. But what else is going on within these universities that we don't know about? Well, before we go and just adding to a couple of the subjects I've raised tonight, I wonder if those fools running around in the streets of Sydney disrupting traffic in peak hour and throwing objects at police, all in the name of climate change, I wonder if they know this, or those at the Glastonbury Music Festival who watched as the 19-year-old Greta Thunberg took to the stage to address the crowd about climate justice. I wonder if she, well, she wouldn't know because she knows nothing. I wonder if she or the crowd watching on would know this, that not only are Germany trying desperately to turn on coal plants amid the energy crisis, but now the UK are as well. When all this renewable stuff goes pear-shaped, where do desperate politicians turn? To coal. After a decade-long campaign demonising the stuff, lecturing the public how awful it is and that everyone should be ashamed to burn it and export it overseas, when the blackouts start and the bills skyrocket, coal saves the day. Have you ever seen such hypocrisy in any policy debate? Remember, almost every crisis we as taxpayers face is a crisis which is the consequence of appalling public policy by politicians. And the media aren't far behind. Note that the respectable Economist magazine in 2020 had a front page titled Time to Make Coal History. Really? The subtitle? Coal is at the toxic heart of the fossil fuel economy, unquote. Don't you love the alarmist rhetoric? They editorialised, quote, renewable energy offers a path to cheaper power generated at home as well as a source of industrial employment and innovation. Coal's days are numbered. The sooner it's consigned to museums and history books, the better, unquote. Really? 
So if renewables, this was only two years ago, if renewables were so great and were, quote, generated at home, then why are we facing this energy crunch now? And please don't say anything about the Russia-Ukraine war. The reality is coal is needed and those praising its demise are ignorant of the realities of energy policy. In the UK, fossil fuel power plants are set to be temporarily freed from planned checks on their emissions in a scramble to prevent blackouts. Whitehall officials are also preparing changes where coal and gas stations providing backup supply in 2023 will not have to get reports on their emissions signed off by an independent expert. Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, has written to the owners of Britain's three remaining coal-fired power plants to ask them to stay open for longer. They were due to shut in September. So here we are, coal to the rescue. And Boris Johnson wonders why those in traditional Labor seats who voted for him are now abandoning the Conservative Party. It's because Boris and other world leaders, including here in Australia, swallowed the Davos globalist line that coal is bad and wind and solar will do the trick, taking orders from Greta Thunberg. The worst part is that here in Australia, we've got the Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen talking absolute rubbish, much the same as the New South Wales Energy Minister Matt Keane, who should not have the portfolio. You're either the Treasurer or the Energy Minister, not both. The energy crisis, as I warned years ago, is the biggest issue facing Australian families and businesses and risks our national security. Without a strong economy, national security is imperiled. Well, on that note, we're not imperiled. That's it from me, though, for tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night right here on ADH-TV. Thanks for your company. Good night.